Welcome back to Will Wright Catholic. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we're looking at the topic, what's the deal with indulgences? And a lot of people don't know what indulgences are. Maybe they have some immediate reaction that, oh, that's, that's what Martin Luther talked about. That's, uh, that's something that's bad. That's something that, you know, the church was selling indulgences and that's evil. And uh, we're going to look at all that. We're going to look at what went on. What are indulgences? What is the Catholic view of the atonement? And uh, there's really a lot of ground to cover, so I'm really excited about this episode. And before I do anything, I want to thank my colleague, uh, Mr. Sean Madigan at the school I teach at, uh, for his assistance in the research and formulation of many of the finer points of the atonement of Christ in this episode. Uh, So thank you, Sean. Sean is a a convert to the Catholic faith and very knowledgeable and very brilliant brilliant guy. And uh, he is pretty well obsessed with the topic of the atonement, as I've come to find out, and I've loved picking his brain. Um, and so he is, he's been a great asset in making this episode. So uh, thanks again, Sean. If uh, this is your first time joining us on Will Write Catholic, uh, welcome. You can go to willwritecatholic.com to find the Substack and become a free or paid subscriber. Paid subscribers will get access to the occasional commentary piece that I'll put out on on various topics that are going on in the church and in the world, uh, or something that's timely but not necessarily catechetical. And uh, the podcasts here at Will Write Catholic can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, uh, right on willwritecatholic.com, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, those will always be free and available. And I try to make those focused on catechetical things. And here at Will Write Catholic, we're always looking for good distinctions because good distinctions are the spice of life. And so without further ado, let's dive into our topic today. What's the deal with indulgences? If you say the word indulgences to most people today, they would call to mind Martin Luther. However, indulgences have been explicitly preached in Catholic theology since uh, the 11th century, and there have been reductions of penalties since at least the 9th century. So where and when does Martin Luther enter the scene? Well, on October 31st, 1517, Father Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk and lecturer at the University of Wittenberg, Germany, issued his propositions for debate concerning the question of indulgences. And the proposed debate was intended to be with Father Johann Tetzel, a German Dominican friar and preacher. Father Tetzel was an appointed papal uh, commissioner for indulgences and was sent to his native Germany to help make money to help build uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So from 19, uh, sorry, 1503 to 1510, uh, Tetzel preached on indulgences and was pretty effective in doing so. Um, There are countless modern sources which say that Pope Julius II authorized the sale of indulgences and that likewise Pope Leo X sold indulgences too and used money to build the magnificent St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. However, The claim that indulgences as such were sold seems to be a myth. Uh, At one time, one of the spiritual acts that you could receive an indulgence for is contributing to a charitable cause, such as the building of a church. And so that's what people were seeing as selling indulgences. But 
charitable organizations offer incentives today to increase donations. So it's not really the same thing at all. Um, in the 16th century, the building fund of St. Peter's Basilica did increase as the result of Tetzel's preaching indulgences. Now, there were absolutely abuses in the practice of indulgences, to be sure. Um, but it's important to understand what they actually are. Right? What is an indulgence? One of the main uh, contributing factors to knowledge of the controversy was Martin Luther's 95 Theses. In Luther's time, and especially now, there's no end to the horribly wrong interpretations of the Catholic teaching on indulgences. I also had a few uh, friends ask if I'd be willing to do an, an episode on indulgences. So here you go, gents. Um, Paul, this one's for you in particular. Um, so I, I think we need to start with what is a Catholic understanding of atonement? What, what does that word atonement mean? Well, after the fall of Adam and Eve, it was fitting that the atonement or reconciliation of mankind be made by a man. Because we fell by man, we should be atoned for by man. However, what mere man could stand in place of all of humanity? Well, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he did so as fully God and fully man. Thus, his death and resurrection were offered in our place, in his humanity, and offered perfectly in his divinity. In the sixth session of the Council of Trent, chapter 2, we hear this. Whence it came to pass that the Heavenly Father, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, when that blessed fullness of the time had was come, sent unto men Jesus Christ, his own Son, who had been both before the law and during the time of the law, to many of the Holy Fathers announced and promised that he might both redeem the Jews who were living under the law and that the Gentiles who followed not after justice might attain to justice and that all men might receive the adoption of sons. Him God had proposed as the propitiator through faith in his blood for our sins and not only for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. And so this is again, the Council of Trent. And there's a lot of things to unpack here. Right? God the Father sent his son, who was foretold, to redeem the Jews and the Gentiles. And this redemption brought with it adoption of each of us by God the Father in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The reconciliation or atonement, and that word atonement literally means to become at one with, the at one meant, uh, comes through the propitiation of sins merited by Jesus' death on the cross. The just wrath of God earned by our sin was turned away by the self-offering, that is the sacrifice and oblation, of our Lord Jesus on the cross. By his wounds, we are healed, quoting the prophet Isaiah. The Nicene Creed we profess each Sunday at Mass reminds us of this reality, right? We say, who for us men and for our salvation came down, took flesh, was made man, and suffered. Jesus did not come for himself, and he gave his life as a ransom for, for how many, for, for few, for all, for, no, the word is for many. And we say many because not everyone will accept this gift, sad to say. However, this doesn't diminish that the gift of Christ's atonement was one for all mankind without exception. So Catholics don't believe, as John Calvin did, in limited atonement. Right. We believe in universal atonement, that the 
the gift of Jesus Christ's atonement on the cross was one for all mankind. But what is this ransom? Right? Who is holding the souls of the fallen men? What required a ransom? Well, it's the enemy, Satan. In his commentary on, on Psalm 95, St. Augustine puts it this way. He says, Men were held captive under the devil and served the demons, but they were redeemed from captivity, for they could sell themselves. The Redeemer came and gave the price. He poured forth his blood and he bought the whole world. Do you ask what he bought? See what he gave and find what he bought. The blood of Christ is the price. How much is it worth? What but the whole world? What but all the nations? And again, that's St. Augustine speaking on Psalm 95. And he goes on to explain this, that in a figure of speech, that the cross was like a trap for the enemy. The Redeemer came, he says, and the deceiver was overcome. What did our Redeemer do to our captor? In payment for us, he set the trap, his cross, with his blood for bait. He, Satan, could indeed shed that blood, but he deserved not to drink it. By shedding the blood of the one who was not his debtor, he was forced to release his debtors. The debt owed to divine justice was paid in full by Jesus Christ. Divine justice was satisfied. But not everybody agreed with St. Augustine's reasoning. St. Anselm and Peter Abelard, for example, rejected the notion that Satan had some sort of right over man. St. Anselm held that an equal satisfaction for sin was necessary to pay the debt to divine justice. Abelard, though, did not hold to the strict notion of satisfaction, and he argued that God could have pardoned us without requiring satisfaction. And don't worry, I'm going to get into what exactly that means. What is satisfaction? What is merit? Uh, We'll be talking about that in a bit later. Um, So the incarnation and the death of Christ was the pure love of God. And Abelard uh, was condemned by St. Bernard for this view because he argued the effect of the atonement was only moral influence and not any objective payment of a debt. So there's a lot of different theological ideas going on here. So as we go forward, St. Thomas Aquinas later agreed with Abelard in rejecting the notion that full satisfaction was necessary. So in other words, the cross, the atonement was was fitting, but not necessary. Um, He agrees with Abelard insofar as the atonement was the greatest demonstration of love, but still holds that under God's economy of salvation, the sacrifice of Christ objectively paid the debt of justice. And Abelard denied this, so um, St. Thomas Aquinas goes a bit further. Restoring mankind to grace was a work of God's mercy and goodness. And so he argued that it was fitting that Christ should die on the cross in order to show the depths of God's love for us, but it wasn't absolutely necessary. Along the ages, Blessed Duns Scotus and St. Bernard of Clairvaux had differing opinions than Abelard and Aquinas. So there's, there's disagreement among theologians throughout the ages, but what is shared among them is this. The atonement is essentially a sacrifice and an act of love. The outward sacrifice is the sacrament of the invisible sacrifice, which comes from the heart of God. As the Catholic Encyclopedia puts it so well, it was by this inward sacrifice of obedience unto death, by this perfect love with which he laid down his life for his friends that Christ paid the debt to justice. 
and taught us by his example and drew all things to himself. It was by this that he wrought our atonement and reconciliation with God, making peace through the blood of his cross. In the old covenants, uh, the Jewish people would offer sin offerings in which a cereal offering or an animal was immolated, offered to God in worship, and then consumed by the priests. Likewise, we get the word scapegoat from the ancient practice of placing, so to speak, all of the sins of the town onto a goat and then releasing the goat to wander into the wilderness, presumably to die. Right? This ancient notion of, at- of atonement was no clearer than on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is centered upon repentance, fasting, asceticism, and the confession of sins. However, the annual of nature of this event shows that it is an incomplete and imperfect atonement. And so we get this perfect atonement, this atonement which is made perfect in Jesus Christ, who died once for the sins of man and then rose from the dead to die no more. Because remember, in the Holy Mass, Christ does not die again. Instead, the cross of Christ, we see a propitiatory sacrifice is renewed daily in a bloodless manner on the altar. So it's the one and same sacrifice offered once again in an unbloody manner. It's presented once again. It's not happening once again. And so what does all this have to do with indulgences, right? That's what we're talking about today, indulgences. Well, everything, really. An indulgence is classically the remission of a debt. That's what an indulgence is. In Roman law, it was meant to be released uh, a release from imprisonment or punishment. The Catholic Encyclopedia defines an indulgence as a remission of the temporal punishment due to sin, the guilt of which has been forgiven. So I'm going to read that again, and and we're going to walk through this, but this is really important. It's the remission of the temporal punishment due to sin, the guilt of which has already been forgiven. So what does an indulgence do? It's remitting the debt. It it is presuming that that forgiveness has already been given. So really important point there. So an indulgence is not a permission to sin, It's not stockpiling forgiveness for a future action, nor does it forgive sin or the guilt of sin, right? An indulgence presumes that God has already forgiven the person receiving it. What's being remitted is the temporal punishment due to sin. And we can understand that this this way. Our sins affect us. They affect our relationship with God and our relationship with others, and particularly egregious sins like rape and murder have lasting effects which cannot be put right this side of heaven. And putting things right is in the nature of justice. God will always set things right one way or another, though we might not see it until the end of things. Nonetheless, once someone experiences contrition, there's a deep desire rooted in justice to make restitution. So imagine that you're a kid playing baseball in the street. Now, of course, this is a bad idea. Mistakes will happen. You know this, and yet you wrongly believe that you are special. So nothing bad will happen, right? And you'll hit the ball perfectly. It'll go right down the street, right in the middle of the street. Everything will be just fine. You won't hit any cars, windows, houses, anything. Then you hit the ball, and it goes sailing right through Mrs. Johnson's Bay window. And immediately you feel terrible about it. 
You didn't mean for anything to be broken, but you experienced contrition for the wrong that you have done. You knew, of course, that you shouldn't be playing baseball in the street. I mean, what did you expect to happen? But now you have a choice, right? You can run away and hide or go and fess up to what you've done wrong. And so you decide to do the right thing and go ask for forgiveness. You ring the doorbell and Mrs. Johnson answers and you immediately apologize for breaking the window and you tell her that you're truly sorry and she forgives you and that's it, right? That's the end of the story. Well, no, right? You, you still have to make restitution. You have to pay for the window. And in this example, we can see analogously how we can be forgiven for something, but justice still demands restitution, satisfaction, and even punishment. And this distinction between forgiveness and the temporal punishment due to sin seems to have gone by the wayside in Protestant theology over the last 500 years. Really, if we look at at it with fresh eyes, hopefully we can see that it's basic common sense that a wrong done demands restitution. So why can't Protestants go there? And the answer really has to do with Martin Luther. Right? In Luther's view, we can do nothing to merit our salvation. And Catholics agree, we can't merit the gift of initial justification. It's completely a gratuitous gift from God, whereby we are covered by Jesus Christ. Nothing in the Lutheran view demands cooperation with grace or even the internal change brought about by baptism, which Catholicism has always held, because that's what we believe as Catholics, that in baptism, there is a real internal change, that we are justified by grace and that we not only are covered by Christ and put on Christ, but that Christ actually conforms us to himself that the Holy Spirit actually comes to dwell within us as in a temple. And so this, this brings us a little closer to indulgences and how they work. All right. With baptism, there's a true change right down to the core of our being. And grace is given, but our free cooperation with grace is necessary because God's love doesn't force itself upon us. This means that our good actions united with Christ are meritorious. And our sinful actions require restitution. The atonement, which we spoke at length about earlier, won by Jesus Christ on the cross, is superabundantly meritorious, to use the language of the church. And when we unite our actions with the cross, they don't add to the merits of Jesus Christ, but they come into communion with them. Likewise, the forgiveness of sins is a communion with the cross of Jesus Christ. But in justice, our bad actions still require temporal punishment and restitution. As the 14th session of the Council of Trent puts it, add to these things that whilst we thus by making satisfaction suffer for our sins, we are made conformable to Jesus Christ, who satisfied, who satisfied for our sins, from whom all our sufficiency is having also thereby a most sure pledge that if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified with him. But neither is this satisfaction which we discharge for our sins so our own as not to be through Jesus Christ. For we can do nothing of ourselves as of ourselves can do all things. He cooperating who strengthens us. 
Thus, man has not wherein to glory, but all our glorying is in Christ, in whom we live, in whom we merit, in whom we satisfy, bringing forth fruits worthy of penance, which from him have their efficacy. By him are offered to the Father, and through him are accepted by the Father. So we can do nothing without Christ, right? It's if we satisfy anything, if we merit anything, it's through him. It's all his grace. It's all his merit on the cross. Now, some Protestants hold to the erroneous view of what's called penal substitution, which is a theory of the atonement that holds that God punished Jesus on the cross. But there's a huge glaring problem with this. An innocent person cannot be justly punished. Jesus took upon himself the sufferings and death that were due to our sins, but he did not take on the just punishment for our sins. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that the satisfaction won by Christ is on the cross. The merit of Jesus Christ, superabundant merit from the cross is given. The ransom is paid. The debt is paid. Sins are forgiven. Guilt is washed away. But the punishment due to sin remains. Now, Jesus Christ took our punishment upon himself, as St. As Thomas teaches. He says in uh, the third part of the Summa, question 49, article 5, he says, Now by Christ's passion we have been delivered not only from the common sin of the whole human race, both as to its guilt and as to the debt of punishment for which he paid the penalty on our behalf. So it wasn't that the father punished Jesus. It's that Jesus paid the penalty. Right? When discussing the fittingness of the death of Christ, Thomas also mentions, in this way, Christ by his death brought us back to life. When by his death, he destroyed our death. Just as he who bears another's punishment takes punishment away. So satisfaction means taking up a penalty voluntarily in order to restore justice. St. Thomas Aquinas speaks of taking up this voluntary penalty as someone experiencing something against the will out of charity. In the case of sin and justice, in charity, this action makes up for sin because sin is voluntarily doing one's own will at the expense of charity. In other words, satisfaction derives its power from the strength of the charity of the one offering it. Now, there's absolutely no need for Jesus to suffer the pains of hell to save us because even one drop of his precious blood could have satisfied the wrath of God. The payment of Jesus, who is sinless and perfect in charity, merits not only release from punishment. By the cross, he merits for us eternal life. When a debt is to be paid, the punishment is measured. In merit, the root of charity is measured. When one merits for another, he merits more than himself. Yet when one satisfies for another, he doesn't also satisfy for himself because the measure of punishment still covers both him and the one on whose behalf he is satisfying. Right? Because the one who is doing the satisfying, he doesn't owe the debt. He doesn't owe the punishment. But he's paying it on another's behalf, and that charity is powerful, right? It covers not only himself, but the one whom he's paying it for. In the case of Jesus, who is, who is without sin, he has no debt to pay. He's satisfying for sinful men out of perfect charity. 
The punishment he bore made satisfaction for the sins of all mankind and merited more than any is capable of, eternal life. So back to indulgences. Temporal punishment acknowledges that the eternal punishment for sin has been taken away on the cross. But the temporal consequences of sin are what still remain. So when when St. Thomas Aquinas is speaking of the punishment being paid by Christ, it's the eternal punishment, the eternal punishment. But these temporal effects of sin still require restitution to the ability that we're able, right? When we do things that are wrong, it causes problems. It causes consequences. It causes injustices in the world. And these things need to be met. They need to be paid. They need to be uh, restituted. So we ought to make amends for the wrongs done. Expiation, satisfaction, amends, and reparation, really it all means the same thing when referring to the temporal consequences and punishment due to sin. So going back to this notion of the superabundant merits of Christ on the cross, we can also add all of the meritorious actions of the baptized faithful through the ages, most, most notably the saints. The treasury of merit, as it's called, is the collection of the perfect, infinite, and superabundant merits of our Lord Jesus Christ, the expansive merits of our Blessed Mother and St. Joseph, and the merits of all the just. Our Lord gave to St. Peter and to the apostles and their successors the authority to apply the fruits of these merits at their discretion when he said this in Matthew sixteen eighteen to 19 He says, And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And likewise, in St. John's gospel, Jesus says to the apostles and their successors by extension in John 20, 22 to 24. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold the sins, uh, withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, when a confessor gives absolution to a penitent in the sacrament of penance, he's applying this forgiveness of sins, which comes from God alone through the instrument of the priest in the church. Our guilt for sin and eternal punishment for sin are absolved. See, that's what we receive in absolution. We receive absolution from the guilt of sin and the eternal punishment for sin. But the temporal punishment for sin remains. An indulgence, then, is an outside is outside of the sacraments. So again, it's presuming that forgiveness of sins has already happened. It doesn't forgive sins. Instead, it applies the satisfaction of the treasury of merit to an individual, thereby remitting their temporal punishment due to sin. In other words, by the merits of Christ and the saints, the debt of temporal restitution has been paid in full. The superabundant merits belong to God's mercy and justice, not to the church absolutely. So these concessions or diminishments of punishment are administered by the church, but they come from God as a free gift. And there's value in what Christ has done for us, but there's also value in what Christ is doing through us. Either way, the primary action is God. But with our cooperation, we unite ourselves with the sacred action of Jesus. 
As St. Paul says in, in one of the strangest passages in the New Testament, if you don't understand this notion of the atonement, in Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now, what could possibly be lacking in the sufferings of Christ except for our cooperation with his grace and our own meritorious actions? Not only do our good actions possess the value or merit, they also certainly possess the value of satisfaction. And it has to be said that Martin Luther when he wrote his 95 theses, he had some great points. In fact, only 41 propositions of Luther's from the 95 theses and his other writings up to that point were rejected as heretical, scandalous, erroneous, seductive of simple minds, in opposition to Catholic truth, or offensive to pious ears by Pope Leo X in 1520. And let's look at the first three of the 95 theses, just the first three. So number one, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number two, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. And then number three, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. Now, all three of these are true. Interior repentance is a reorienting of one's entire life, not just a momentary, I'll I'll try a bit harder. This call of our Lord to repentance does does not refer to the sacrament of penance because it's a call which is first addressed to those who don't know yet Christ and the gospel. And finally, interior conversion should find expression in visible signs, gestures, and penitential actions. It does seem, though, that Luther is presupposing that indulgences were being sold with official authorization. This myth is prevalent today, and it appears it was in Luther's day as well. Indulgences are drawn from the treasury of merit and applied freely when those seeking them fulfill the requirements with proper disposition. Luther's 95 Theses present many theological errors in this regard, and these errors are still being repeated today. For example, this 2009 article from the New York Times, which gets it wrong right from the title, and the content of the article only goes from worse to worse, by the way, and the the title of the article is, For Catholics, A Door to Absolution is Reopened, Uh, speaking about indulgences, and that's just ridiculous. That's not how any of that works. Um, By the way, just to show how seriously the church took these abuses, Pope St. Pius V in 1567 issued a decree which canceled all grants of indulgences involving, involving any fees or other financial transactions. So when there were um, committed uh, acts against the selling of indulgence or any sort of notion of selling of indulgences or any abuses of indulgences, the church set to make those things right. And many Catholics think that indulgences per se were an abuse and they're not. And though it was a focal point in the Protestant reformation, indulgences didn't go anywhere, right? A door to absolution has not been reopened as that New York times article put it. 
right? As the Catechism of the Catholic Church stated in the early 1990s, in Catechism of uh, the Catholic Church 1478, an indulgence is obtained through the church who, by the virtue of the power of binding and loosing granted her by Jesus Christ, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of merits of Christ and the saints to obtain from the Father of mercies the remission of the temporal punishment due for their sins, to spur them to works of devotion, penance, and charity. Everything that I presented about indulgences belongs to the infallible teachings of the church. We're not at liberty to dismiss them, diminish them, or disbelieve in them. The Council of Trent's anathema makes this clear. The Council of Trent, quote, condemns with anathema those who say that indulgences are useless or that the church does not have the power to grant them, end quote. So we're simply not, uh, we're not open, we're not able to uh, cast them aside. The church does not remit temporal punishment due to sin with magic or the wave of a pen. And the person who suffers those temporal punishments must be disposed to repentance and faith. As Pope St. Paul VI said uh, recently in the, the 70s, indulgences cannot be gained without a sincere conversion of outlook and unity with God. Indulgences cannot be gained without a sincere conversion of outlook and unity with God. Before the Second Vatican Council, indulgences were said to remove a certain number of days from punishment. Instead, this was to show that indulgences have two types, plenary and partial. Plenary just means full. It means that all temporal punishment due to sin that a person owed is being remitted. Whereas a partial indulgence remits part of the temporal punishment due to sin. In order to make this clearer, Pope St. Paul VI revised the handbook of indulgences, which is called the Enchiridion. Enchiridion. I can never say that word right. Anyway, the, the handbook of indulgences. And as we've covered, satisfaction and temporal punishment for sin are ordered towards justice on the one hand and purification on the other hand. So the actions for which one might receive an indulgence should likewise be ordered to justice, charity, and purification. Because the justice of God has been satisfied through the merits of Christ and the saints applied to our lives, then the time, so to, so to speak, needed for purification and charity after death has been lessened. So just as a, a checkpoint or a reminder, indulgences remit the temporal punishment due to sin, not eternal punishment. Eternal punishment is remitted fully by the cross of Jesus Christ, the merits of which we receive in the sacrament of baptism. So it's not earning salvation. It's, a, it's all about those temporal punishments due to sin. It's making things right after forgiveness has already been presumed. Knowing rightly what an indulgence is, well, how can we receive this great gift? And uh, I have this, this lengthy quote from Jimmy Aiken, but he puts it fairly concisely in his primer on indulgences for EWTN. He says this, quote, To gain any indulgence, you must be a Catholic in a state of grace. You must be a Catholic in order to be under the church's jurisdiction, and you must be in a state of grace because apart from God's grace, none of your actions are fundamentally pleasing to God. That is meritorious. 
you also must have at least the habitual intention of gaining an indulgence by the act performed. To gain a partial indulgence, you must perform with a contrite heart the act to which the indulgence is attached. To gain a plenary indulgence, you must perform the act with a contrite heart, plus you must go to confession. One confession may suffice for several plenary indulgences. Receive communion and pray for the Pope's intention. An Our Father and a Hail Mary said for the Pope's intention are sufficient, although you are free to substitute other prayers for your own choosing. The final condition is that you must be free from all attachment to sin, including venial sin. And that last one, is that's the, that's the tough one. Uh, Jimmy Aiken continues, Because of the extreme difficulty in meeting the final condition that is, being free of all attachment to sin, including venial sin, plenary indulgences are rarely obtained. If you attempt to receive a plenary indulgence, but you are unable to meet the last indulgence, a, par- a last condition, a partial indulgence is received instead. End quote. So the church offers us special indulgences, both plenary and partial, for all sorts of things. And there are a couple of partial indulgences worth mentioning here. Partial indulgences are given by the church for devoutly spending time in mental prayer, reading sacred scripture with veneration as a form of spiritual reading. This one is plenary if done for at least 30 minutes. And then devoutly signing oneself with the sign of the cross and saying the customary formula of in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, just by a short way of conclusion, indulgences are not magic, right? They're, they're part of the infallible teaching of the church, and they are for our spiritual well-being. We should not be wary of officially promulgated, uh, promulgated indulgences. We should be grateful to God for his superabundant mercy and his justice, recognizing that we are sinners in need of his grace. We approach the sacrament of penance, and then we do penance to seek temporal satisfaction and restitution for the consequences of our sins. All the while, we ought to seek out indulgences because they are nothing more than being in union and communion with Almighty God and striving to be more in love with Him who loved us first. Again, it's all about justice, charity, and purification, right? to become more like Jesus Christ, who merited for us, on the cross, eternal life. So awesome. I mean, there's so many good things about indulgences and and so many Catholics don't know anything about them. So I hope that this has been a help to you. I hope that you understand more now what indulgences are, that they're not just something that Martin Luther was railing against that were bad in the 1500s, but no, they're, they're actually gifts from the church, from Jesus Christ, from God to help us grow in holiness, to help us be purified and more Christ-like. And so uh, go, go check them out. Look at the Handbook of Indulgences. Um, very easy to find online. So with that, I, I thank you for listening. If this has been helpful, please share this episode with your friends and family on social media. Email in person. Tell people about the podcast. We'll write Catholic. Um, and remember... Good distinctions are the spice of life. Let's end in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Cross. We thank you for the ability to help us work out our salvation in fear and trembling, as St. Paul says. And please help us to, as we learn more about indulgences, that we might do them with the right intention to grow in union and communion with you, dear Lord, to, to grow in justice and charity and to be purified by your grace. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.